This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're gonna have a really interesting show. We've had a market crash in crypto. Uh, we're gonna talk a lot about uh, what's going on there. Uh, and, and, and how that's all playing out through the crypto markets. Um, but before that, we're going to have Professor Siegel kick us off with some broad comments. we got some relief, Professor, after a volatile week, some pressure. Uh, how are you thinking going into the weekend? Yeah, an, an extremely, a really strong relief rally from an oversold position. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not a fan Still, of some of those tech stocks, but boy, they got hammered unbelievably. And and we think across uh, today, particularly strength across the board for you know uh, small stocks that have been hammered. Uh, emerging markets up uh, you know two and a half percent on some better, slightly better news from uh, from from China. Um, uh, yeah, the basic problems are are still there. Then let's take a look at at the in, at at first the economic news. And then we can we can comment on uh, uh, the the markets itself. The CPI was not good, but anyone who listened to our show would have known that. Uh, again, shelter is beginning. Home ownership, uh, rental costs, uh, owners' equivalent rent, all that is beginning to filter in, pushing up the core rate. Um, so it came in well above expectations on the core six tenths versus four tenths. I Expect that to continue. Something else, that big drop in energy, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's totally gone. As we all know, uh, uh, you know, gasoline prices are, are now at, at new, uh, you know, all-time record high. So we're going to see another blowout figure, uh, you know, in, in June for, for May CPI. This inflation is, is, absolutely not not over ppi came in a little closer to expectations but really uh we've got a lot of inflation to go uh to say the least um before i comment on the fed pretty shocking uh university of michigan sentiment indexes that we saw today 59.1 10-year low i mean it has fallen now basically to the lower it was at the bottom of the great financial crisis and then matched after, you know, S&P ground, downgraded S, uh, U.S. debt and, and the, the Asian, uh, the um, European crisis. I mean, it's almost, you know, never been lower than this. And yet we have a booming economy with unemployment at 3.6 percent. What is it? It's inflation. It's people are really very unhappy um, and, and that is weighing on, uh, certainly consumer sentiment. I mean, just seeing the prices of oil go up, the prices of, and particularly we've been talking about the fact that uh, we haven't been hit yet really by the price of, uh, natural gas going up. That, that's really going to start pummeling both consumers and, and businesses, um, uh, you know, very, very soon, uh, gets into electricity costs as well. You know, again, this, this inflation is still going to be with it. It's going to be persistent. We're going at 5 6 7% for the next 12 months, 18 months. And that's discouraging a lot of uh, uh, consumers. Uh, the question is, how, you know, how far does the Fed have to go? I, I get questions all the time. Should they do 100, get it over with 150? You know, the real answer doesn't matter. They already pushed too much money in over the last two years. And it's working its way through the system. Again, we've mentioned last two months of money supply growth has been moderate. We won't until the fourth Tuesday get the, another monthly reading. 
they have to monitor that. So, you know, whether they go, you know, shock the market to say we're really, you know, serious or not, that money is in there. That money's got to go through the system. There is still too high demand for labor and too high demand for goods um, combined with the energy uh, crisis, uh, you know, partly but not wholly uh, emanating from the Russian invasion um, uh, in, in the Ukraine. Did we see the bottom yesterday, or is this just another short-selling cover rally uh, that, you know, we saw before? Um, You know, it's impossible to say. Um, I always say, um, you know, bear markets, bull markets always give you a second chance to get in, maybe not quite um, uh, at the bottom that uh, you, you had before, but close to. So we could get a nice rally and then a retracement. I've said when we came within a few tenths of a, of a bear market in S&P, we might get it. But I have a hard time. I mean, we, I hear a lot of commentary talking about 16, 17 P.E. ratios on a, on, a, on a 5% cut on earnings. First of all, I think earnings are going to be good this year. I think we're going to meet estimates. Recession of if it's going to be, will be in 2023. Secondly, I've, you know, I've maintained that the real equilibrium PE ratio is 20. Um, now, doesn't mean it's not, listen, markets fluctuate, could go 25 at the high, 15 at the low. I'm not saying, you know, but I'm just talking about normal. We are undervalued for a long-term market. Um, doesn't mean can't go lower in the short run. We all know that long-term investors should step in they have cash start legging in if you've been lucky enough to have cash you know start legging in what's working even though we got a better bounce in nasdaq and and the you know the the ultra you know uh, uh mega growth stocks i have a short selling bounce the rotation is continuing into the value stocks and into the dividend paying stocks and I believe that that rotation uh, will continue. Let me uh, ask you one final question on bonds before I let you go. The, um, you know, certainly uh, so much of it's got, gone with bonds selling off all year this year. This week, you've also seen bonds rallying a bit on uh, with, with the stock selling off again for the first time all year. H- how do you see the bond market playing out uh, through the rest of the year? Is there a new, you talked about 20 as new normal PE. Do you have a new normal real interest rate for the 10-year? The uh, we talked a little bit about that yeah, this week. Yeah, yeah. So right now we see the 10-year tips at 22 basis points. Um, you know, very honestly, um, you know, not much higher. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see. I mean, I, I don't think we're, we're not certainly never going to get back to the four, three, four percent in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, there's so many things working against that. I, you know, I would say that we, I wouldn't be surprised to see real tips going between minus a half and plus a half. Um, and I also, you know, I, I've been saying the 10 year on the nominal side, you know, maybe it'll hit three and a half, but you can see now it's down 288. Uh, I mean, uh, the Fed will continue to tighten. We've talked about that. They probably have to raise certainly above the 10-year rate. There will be a mild inversion, um, uh, you know, coming up. Uh, listen, we have December 23 Fed funds at 3.01 right now. December 22 Fed funds is, is selling at 263 right now which is, you know, about uh, 30 basis points under the 10-year. And we know that those are actually underestimates, given the hedges, um, of, of where we, you know, where we, we uh, ultimately uh, do have to go. I do want to mention about crypto. The crash of the uh, stable coin was in the algorithmic form. It put pressure on all the others. They have come back to par. Um now, I can't vouch for all of them. And, um, you know, uh, you, you, one has to realize, uh, you know, and, and obviously this had affected Coinbase, which was, you know, all the way down in the 40s. Now it's jumped back to 72 as I look. But, um, you know, uh, if, if, if Coinbase or any of them go under, uh, your, your crypto holdings could be consumed by some of the creditors. Some people pointed out that 
through a brokerage firm that's not really. You have insurance against brokerage firms uh, of several millions of dollars uh, 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 on, on the brokerage firms with much, much tighter supervision and, uh, you know, affirmation. So it, it is, you know, you, you, you do have to worry about that. I do think the stable coins and all that will, well, hey, you know, listen, Bitcoin is back to 30,000 and above. You know, I've never been a big fan of it. Um, uh, you know, low overall. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that the, that the non-algorithmic stable coins have withstood a real crisis yesterday and bounced back, uh, you know, tells me that, you know, they, they, they appear to be fully uh, collateralized. But caveat emptor in, all, in the entire world of, of crypto uh, certainly has to be um, uh, looked, looked at. Well, Professor, that's a good lead into our discussion we're going to be having. Thank you for joining to, to start the show. Thank you much. We're going to talk in depth on this issue, uh, we, and we have two amazing guests to talk about it. Uh, we have Eric Irvin, who's founder and CEO of OnRamp Invest, uh, sort of technology platform, crypto-oriented, uh, that, that helps enable uh, advisors uh, to get access to the crypto ecosystem. We're going to be hearing from Eric, as well as we have Benjamin Dean, who's a director of, of digital assets at Wisdom Tree Europe. Uh, Eric, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And Ben, good to have you here as well. Thanks for, for joining us. It's been a, a real interesting time in the markets, to say the least. And, and I want to dig into a lot of what the professor just said, talking about the the custodians, the safety, the insurance, all that, uh, and sort of stable coins. We want to drill into all those topics. Um, but Eric, I think you've got, uh, it, as, as a CEO and founder of a business, uh, and been trying to raise capital for uh, to to keep the business during all this volatile time. Tell us about what's uh, your experience been been with this business. Yeah, it's um, it's been a wild ride. You know, just like when any startup, it, it, you you go through um, times of feast and famine, and and um, on ramp is is a no no stranger to to both of those. We we started the company about eighteen months ago. Have have um, really been through an awful lot, like fast hyper growth in the beginning, and then in um, I took over as CEO about two months ago, in order to to raise capital and get the the company funded. And as you look out on the horizon, you see, you know, VCs are really tightening up their purse strings right now, and and um, crypto is is a it's not the best environment to be raising capital. But we're really happy. We just we just closed around with um, some excellent investors. We're going to be putting some news out on that, so I guess we're breaking news here. Breaking but, uh, news on SiriusXM. Yeah. OnRamp has raised some capital. Yep, and and really happy um, with the the market and the investors. And you know, I think this is when the the real investments get made. Like in the Great Financial Crisis, that's when so many unicorns were built. And you know, during the dot bomb crisis, you know, it's the, like the people who put capital to work in those environments, and then the companies who build throughout those environments, those are the ones that, that typically end up um, light years ahead because they just don't do the profligate things that, that you do in bull markets. You know, they're, they're a lot more uh, conservative with their capital, I should say. Forged under fire. Well, you know, congrats, Eric. Right. We were uh, an early seed round investor, and uh, and we're we're very happy for you to have gotten this uh, this new injection. And it's been tough. I mean, it, it, as you said, sort of a, a lot of growth early on, and, and having to figure out how do you uh, manage in this 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 environment has been been tricky. As you are talking to advisors, what are the what are those conversations like? How they picked up pace? Have they been been nervous this week? What's what's been the sense of of your conversations? Yeah, zooming in on this like very hyper focused, you know, kind of short term time frame. Advisors are just humans, just like everybody else, and so they get that kind of nervous, uh, kind of want to hide underneath the desk and not talk to anyone, and and just you know hope that the markets kind of fix themselves. But but um, most people are just as positive as they've ever been, if not even a little bit more positive, because I think some of the bloom is off off the rows and, you know, where they wanted to allocate to crypto, but they were a little hesitant in this raging bull market that we've had for, for many years now, that now they're starting to, to kind of come back and say, all right, things are a little bit more sane. And if any, 
if anything goes to show is, is just the resiliency of, of Bitcoin. You know, you just can't kill this asset class. It's no matter how many bad things that happen, it continues to, to survive and come back. And I think like this algorithmic stablecoin event that just, just came upon us is a, a true test of the market. And again, it just, it just survives. It's like the Mt. Gox thing. There's always been a crisis in crypto, but it always seems to come back and usually come back stronger. Well, Ben, let me bring you into the conversation. You wrote a note today, um, I, I believe, the pegging Soros would be proud of. Uh, so let's talk about the breaking of the of the Terra peg. Let's what when you say proud Soros would be proud. Why why is he uh, going to be proud of what happened this week? Essentially, what happened this week was an attack on the UST stablecoin uh, in an attempt to kind of break its peg, and then because of the design of this uh, network ultimately kind of break the economics of the network. A little bit like Soros going after the, the British pound or the tide bars. Uh, different kinds of dynamics at play, but the outcome is similar. Uh, what folks need to understand at the get-go, and Professor Siegel touched on this, not all stable coins are the same. There's kind of two broad categories of stable coins, US dollar peg tokens, uh, Terra, Luna, UST, the, the source of this collapse this week is an algorithmically backed stablecoin. There's a, a, a dollar peg token that's redeemable for a cryptocurrency. And if the peg is lost on the downside, one is still able to exchange the UST stablecoin for this cryptocurrency at face value, and in that way catch an arbitrage uh, profit. And the same works in the other direction. That is very, very different to the bulk of the stable coins out there on the market. Uh, those are not algorithmic. They are uh, issued by entities, some regulated, some not so. And they are often collateralized, over collateralized. So Circle issues the USDC stable coin, which has seen uh, huge growth this last year. Circle is a money transmission regulated entity in the United States. And uh, their USDC stablecoin is wildly popular. It's backed by U.S. dollars and, and short-term U.S. T-bills. Uh, Tether is the other one that's issued by Tether organization. They're a bit more opaque about their holdings. Most of it is commercial paper, the quality of which is not immediately clear. But they are entirely different to this UST Luna incident this week. So we straighten that out right there. Now, uh, to close out the thought, so what actually happened this week? I mentioned that basically there's this UST, US dollar token that is meant to be staying stable, fixed. And then there's this cryptocurrency that floats and you get arbitrage opportunities. There is a well-known failure mode for these algorithmic stable coins. We've known it for years. One very clever person called it the coupon coin curse. And, and basically to sum it in a couple of sentences, it's all very well to have this oscillating cryptocurrency to help stabilize the peg. But if there's no demand for the cryptocurrency at the time at which it's needed to bring the, uh, the stablecoin back to peg, well, then just demand collapses. And it clicks into motion this chain of events whereby you almost see a run on the cryptocurrency and stablecoin. And that's what we saw this week. It's it's interesting. I, I want to go into a, a little bit more details, but you know, I, I was right before this. I I, I was listening to a, a quick Twitter Spaces spite. Uh, there was like a sparring match between uh, a few people, and, and one of the the CTOs from Tether was on, and people were sort of questioning, "Why aren't you showing what you have at Tether? Like, why don't you just give transparency?" Uh, any views to 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 why they may not do that, or you know, they say they don't, they're not required by the regulators. Um, and, and any views on you know, are others showing transparency? Would that give confidence in their holdings? Yes. <clears throat> so some entities are very transparent about their holdings. Circle has audited financial statements every month that you can go and check to see what the backing is. Uh, Tether, on the other hand. Many years ago, uh, Tether wouldn't, they refused to disclose anything that was backing it. They've gotten a little bit better in recent years by explaining the composition of it in broad terms. Uh, the, the founder or CEO there says it's their secret source, and so they don't want to 
to let people know what the secret sauce is. What I observe is that in the presence of that opacity and the availability of regulated, fully collateralized alternatives, people are voting with their wallets. Circle has, in essence, been eating market share off Tether over the last 18 months. And uh, over time, that will continue to put pressure on Tether to be more transparent. If not, new entrants to the market have got a very clear path towards uh, sustainability and profitability. And that's really the story of this crypto digital asset ecosystem over the last 10 years. It goes from like a ragtag bunch of wildcat uh, equivalents uh, and then eventually it evolves into kind of the shell, uh, Royal Dutch shell, formalized, regulated, institutionalized, professionalized, ultimately, a mature industry uh, in, in after a few, a few decades. We're talking with Eric Irvin, CEO, founder of Honor of Invest, Benjamin Dean, director of digital assets, Wisdom Tree Europe. Eric, as, as you see the, the risks coming in the crypto ecosystem this week, how do you look at the, the activity, those stable coins, uh, that, that dynamic? What, what's your sense of what, what all ha- transpired this week? Yeah, and, and um, just for the listeners who, who maybe don't even have context of like what is a stable coin, and um, I, I think ETFs are like a perfect example of this. Where you know, say a money market fund, which which ha- has you know commercial paper and treasuries, T bills, etc., inside of this money market fund, it's designed to trade at one dollar per share all the time. And if there's ever what we call breaking the buck, but if there's ever impairment any any of those assets inside of that money market fund then it might not trade at a full dollar no money markets um have have ever permanently broken the buck in in terms of um kind of stability and that's partly because some fund companies during the great financial crisis had to come in and kind of save the the fund or or at least bolster it up but what you have there is you have direct visibility into what's in the fund because these are regulated mutual fund companies that have, uh, you know, auditors and custodians and administrators. And there's a lot of infrastructure that's already set in place in order to support that. The beauty of, of the stablecoin, though, is I'm not captive to this one fund at my brokerage firm. And then if I want to transfer my money out, I have to get it out of that fund and then move it somewhere else. With a stablecoin, you can just move it around. From person to person, you can hold it on the blockchain. If, if your brokerage firm is going to go out of business, potentially, you could take that capital off of the brokerage in this stable coin. And that's where um, the utility is just so much better than even like when we have to pay money out of, um, of our you know, hedge fund or, or other interests. It costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars in wire transfer fees versus in a stable coin, you can just send it. And on a Sunday night at midnight, you don't have to wait for the banks to be open. And so there's an awful lot of utility there. And that's why they continue to grow. But there's going to be all these other kind of schemes and gimmicks in order to create stable coins without a regulatory wrapper. And that's what a lot of these these um, algorithmic stable coins have have done. Not that, not because they're trying to get around regulation. It's just right now it's very, very hard to get something approved in the U.S. and and very expensive. And so if, if that can be a, another way, like a global way, I think it has a lot of value. But um, but in, in the case of this algorithmic stablecoin, like oftentimes it gets uh, kind of this moniker of a Ponzi scheme. And I guess to the extent that anything is is based on the belief that that thing will continue, it, it is in, in a sense, you know, because there has to be more capital coming into the to this kind of scheme in order to keep it going. And then as soon as the capital starts to come out, then it all unwinds like an incredible liquidity cascade that, that unwinds it. But that's not much different than a run on a bank. If, if you, you know, any kind of fractionalized reserve system, when you get money coming out faster than the, the money can get sourced or the assets can get sourced, that's a big, big problem. And that's just exactly what we saw in the great financial crisis. And it's, exactly what we've seen now with a number of different algorithmic stable coins that have had this problem. Maybe Ben could touch on the difference between the maker die situation and, and say this, this Terra Luna one, because I think that that's pretty interesting. Maker die has been around for some time now and it's had its fair share of crises, 
but it's continued to to survive through this. I'd I'd love to hear your take on why it makes it versus say that the UST situation. So again, not all stable coins are created equally. And uh, indeed, the difference between Maker Dai and Terra Luna UST, uh, there's an important difference. The first is around collateralization. So the Maker Dai is over collateralized. Uh, and in that way, it's maybe not the most efficient structure, but it has given that uh, stablecoin DAI longevity. It's probably the longest standing algorithmic stablecoin. And it's backed by Ethereum. So Ethereum has demand use cases beyond just this very narrow idea of trying to peg it to a fluctuating cryptocurrency. There is demand for Ether to print NFTs, to, uh, to take part in DeFi networks, to send stablecoins themselves on the network. So you've got this constant, and we found growing demand, which ultimately maintains the, the over-collateralized assets that back the DAI stablecoin. That's entirely different to what we saw with uh, Terra, Luna, and UST. For a long time, it was not collateralized at all, the UST stablecoin. And that became a very apparent problem, not just theoretically, but like in practice. So the last couple of weeks, Luna Foundation Guard, a group of people decided to start building up reserves in Bitcoin, try and back part of the Luna cryptocurrency. They managed to amass maybe a billion dollars of Bitcoin, not nearly enough. I mean, the, there was $18 billion outstanding of uh, of, of UST and the lunar cryptocurrency peaked at around $41 billion in uh, market capitalization a few months ago. So it was to, to call it even like slightly collateralized is an overstatement. Like it was almost basically non-collateralized. And so we've seen like very quickly that peg came unstuck and without the kind of ecosystem demand, perpetual and growing ecosystem demand that Ethereum has, I mean, Luna, the cryptocurrency, had just no hope, basically, once the tides turned upon it. It, it was such a reverse. I mean, it was it was a steady march higher while the music was playing, and then it uh, it stopped, and it just sort of snowballed in, in like two to three days. It's, it's, it was a, a, a really quick reversal. Is, is, do you think, is there is there that kind of risk with, is the overclassification the one thing that makes Make or Die different, the, the Ether back, background there? Certainly, yes. It's that over-collateralization that helps. It's that it's, it's backed. I mean, Ethereum doesn't have to move up or down in line with the peg to die. Like, completely independent. Um, it's certainly been around the longest. So from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, a lot of these protocols and smart contracts fail because the code's not written very well, ends up getting hacked or just, like, technically doesn't scale and collapses. Uh, there's also a technical element to make a die that has helped its longevity. It's a variety of reasons why it's persisted, but that is noteworthy in this space where there is a lot of experimentation. We see a lot of trial and error. This week was an example of a very big error. I think the, the maker dies persistence and longevity is testament to a, a sensibly set up an overly cautious economic model backing it, coupled with very high levels of software, fault tolerant software development. Uh, very promising. We're talking about uh, what's been happening in the crypto markets. I, I want to come to how the professor started the show, Eric. Uh, and, he, and so one of the news headlines this week was on Coinbase. And there were some headlines from their, their financial statements talking about the risk of bankruptcy and people who have their assets at Coinbase. Um, you know, we have some products in London uh, and we use Coinbase as our custodian. Uh, and, you know, in, in institutional capacity, uh, these are sort of segregated accounts and, and sort of uh, in, in the name of sort of separated assets. But uh, for, for a traditional exchange uh, and re retail, uh, like myself, I have a Coinbase account. Some of that is not separated, right? That is the risk there. How do, how do you all think about that? Uh, at, at on-ramp and through the custodians you all work with, how, how should people be thinking about the risks to crypto uh, investing that way? Yeah, um, well, first, d just to, to 
dispel some rumors because I think that that got uh, very sensationalized, uh, unfortunately, and and so it, it is a common disclosure of any company that you know the assets custodied could be potentially uh, bankruptcy or not bankruptcy remote assets and, and be part of a bankruptcy, but Coinbase is under no like in a very very strong financial position. They just had a bad quarter, and if you're an exchange in the crypto world and you rely on transaction revenue, then you're going to have lower quarters when transaction revenue is down, but, you know, kind of full stop. But from a um, uh, the perspective of all custody, that's not the case. So the, the way that typically these, um, these brokerage or custodians work is they'll have a cold storage option where you can kind of opt into and you can pay for. And that cold storage is essentially taking the crypto off of the market it's um it's putting it into um, essentially like a wallet that's never touched the internet it's uh it's in a faraday cage that you know literally no wireless signal can get into or out of the and then the funds are sent to that wallet and you can see them in a segregated form and so you know that that's your assets and they're held under custody those are different than say your exchange account that you just trading and, and buying and selling all day, if there was ever an issue, then those assets could be um, kind of taken off the exchange, potentially by a bad actor or a hacker or, or something like that. And usually, I think in Coinbase's case, I don't know if it's exactly this, but like around 98% of the assets are held in cold storage and, and roughly 2% of the assets, which are more higher velocity assets trading a lot, are on the exchange in the hot wallets, we call it. Um, in in OnRamp's case, what we also do is is a uh, you know because we're offering exchange services for financial advisors, and a lot of financial advisors are required to have a what's called a qualified custodian if they are going to be allocating client funds. And so Gemini is one of the qualified custodians that we offer, and that's partly because Gemini is a trust company. They're regulated by the New York De- Department of Financial Services. And so they have slightly different regulations where they um, essentially have to have every account be um, in a kind of a segregated fashion. They have a lot more onerous restrictions on the way that they have to do business. And so it works really well for the financial advisors that we use. But from from like the headlines perspective, I have a Coinbase account. I have a Gemini account. I have lots of different accounts. I'm not concerned at all about my Coinbase crypto holdings. I'm not concerned at all about my Gemini coin, you know, holdings, but I also like to be able to take my assets off of the exchange and hold them in a hardware wallet and hold them, you know, and, and that's kind of one of the beauties of crypto is, is uh, it kind of frees you from being hostage to an exchange in the great financial crisis. You know, when, when there was uncertainty of whether or not Lehman was going to make it or Bear Stearns was going to make it, you didn't really have anywhere to turn because every other bank was was on the verge as well. Here, you can actually take your assets off of the exchange and put them on the blockchain and hold those assets directly, which is just such a um, a novel concept that a lot of people don't even use right now. You know, most assets are held on exchanges and traded, but an awful lot of people take advantage of the fact that they can be their own banker, essentially. While we're talking news and headlines, um, you know, on the positive, one of the positive things sending all these exchanges up today, you have you have news last, uh, I think it was last night, um, that Sam Bankman-Fried is taking a position in Robinhood, uh, around an eight percent position in Robinhood, which you know started off as this one of the the few like no fee platforms, wasn't trading, was going to get paid, sort of the. Uh, commission for order flow type stuff, uh, and then you know the crypto revenue is another you know big part of their revenue. So the, obviously that's part of Sam's play. Does do either you want to speculate on what FTX or Sam would have in play for Robinhood? Eric, do you want to try? Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Sam, and uh, there's just a couple of entrepreneurs in in the crypto space that that I'm uh, you know just incredibly. Uh, a believer in like i i would kind of always bet on them that and sam is one of them cz from from binance is another one they're they're going big they they're thinking much much bigger than uh, buying and selling bitcoin this is um in, in fact one of the first things that got me so excited about crypto is i, I kind of believe the whole world should be 
in in a digital kind of we live in a digital world why why aren't our assets in digital form so equities will someday be tokenized you know bonds traditional assets art like all of these things can be tokenized and i kind of view it as a as a, like a warning where the FTX wants to get into equity trading. They want to get into derivatives trading. They want to get into, um, you know, obviously they have the crypto, they have NFTs and, and there it's, I, I kind of joke, it's, it should be flower fields without fences. You know, we, we should have all of our assets can be traded and, and accessed and, and used the way we want to use them when we want to use them and how we want to use them as opposed to just during the, the hours between 9 a.m. and, and 4, 4 p.m. Eastern when an exchange happens to be open. So that's kind of where I see FTX is going is they want equity trading, they want derivatives, crypto, they, they want it all. And it's the traditional custodians that maybe should be worried right now because they're, they've got their head in the sand a little bit thinking like, oh, yeah, that's cute, this little crypto stuff. But these are some of the fastest growing companies in the world, literally. Um, it would be very interesting if he did more than the 10% purchase. Um, you know, there's definitely people say, well, it's certainly not a cheap stock. Um, and um, But even though it's collapsed um, from like 100 to 10, um, so it's down uh, like 90%, but still people say it's not a, a quote unquote cheap stock on traditional metrics. But it's uh it'll be very interesting what what sam does i mean we we certainly agree with your thesis at wisdom tree eric right we are trying to tokenize all those type of assets in uh in, in our future with our uh investments in currency and some other things where we're trying to tokenize those mainstream assets and people will be hearing a lot more from us on that over time but but very interesting but any of your your hot takes on what's going on in the ecosystem this week yeah i mean on the standpoint remember that he comes from like the capital markets background the reason he saw opportunity with FTX was like traditional capital market infrastructure is really inefficient. Uh, let's go and like redo it with the crypto rails, which was he, he's been wildly successful for. Uh, what I find interesting here is almost like the way that you're watching the blurring of the lines between the traditional finance and the crypto. Uh, I guess you could call it crypto finance or crypto ecosystem. I suspect what he's about to do is go in and start. Remember, Robinhood is really just like a, a nice front end put on top of traditional financial rails. Now, if you were to go and take that nice front end and then go replumb the back end with crypto rails, you would have a, a much more efficient set of pipes with, with, with which to run not just crypto assets, but traditional assets for that matter. And so that dynamic whereby we're watching the lines blur between the two, which you traditionally were or historically have been separate, Blurring of the lines is, is what we're seeing play out right now. Attack on the other element that tells us that the it's almost the end of the Wild West for the crypto space, and we're watching the space mature. The, the other element is uh, announcements like out of the Biden White House, the executive order on the responsible development of digital assets. Uh, if listeners go and have a look at that executive order, it's written out in very clear uh, technocratic terms around there are benefits from this technology. We know it's really big now, and we know lots of people are benefiting and, and can benefit more, and we know what the risks are. So let's go and address the risks. Uh, let's go maximize the benefits and do what really happens with every wave of technological change at scale. Uh, that is perhaps the other element, almost like becoming more regulated. Uh, and I'll stop there. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We have Eric Irvin, CEO of OnRamp Invest, Benjamin Dean, Director of Digital Assets, Wisdom Tree Europe. Let me uh, sort of turn the conversation, Eric, to thinking about how investors should, in your mind, best practices for allocating to crypto. I think one of the questions is with all this volatility, how should it be thought about in portfolios? We've worked with you all on some model portfolios and even indexes of crypto. There's an index called the R-Tree Index that, that we had created, uh, call it six months ago, to try to be broad, diversified access to the ecosystem. Uh, and I think you know today now it's around 70% between Bitcoin and Ether, so the two main assets. And it started with 4% in, in 11 
separate assets and the idea to try to get some growth of the whole ecosystem and you could have some winners and losers um, but if you get diversified exposure the idea of like indexing to the S&P you know you wanted to try to get broad-based exposure uh, you know in disclosure we had a Luna in that at 4% at the start and it had rose uh, and then collapsed uh, obviously so you know the, from the beginning it would have lost 4% of value but it did at the peak get up to 7% of value how do you think about that uh, that sort of broad-based exposures how do you think about incorporating that into people's allocations for things like that. Yeah, so a couple things there. The um, the well, the first way is is just you want you want diversification because that's just a sensible thing to do. Is is to especially in when you're investing in kind of a new novel asset class. And I, I think of this as as more just a it's a technology play. So this is you know just like you would invest in say the Nasdaq or into a, a portfolio of. of Strong new technologies, emerging technologies. Here, you're getting to do just that. You're you're basically in, investing in a bunch of different protocols. And um, a protocol for for your listeners, you know, you might think about there was TCP/IP, the ability to transfer information over over an internet protocol. And then we had the voice over pro- internet protocol. And then we had you know uh, SMTP, which is for email. So we were able to send messages over. Uh, a protocol. This is just money over the internet protocol, right? So, and, but now actually you can own some of the railing and the infrastructure. And so like Ben was talking about Ethereum, Ethereum is, is a protocol, but you can actually own some of the transaction, you know, benefits from, from this network. And so the more that the network gets used, the more value will accrue to those original token holders. So it's not just Bitcoin. It's it's like so much bigger than that. And then there's so much evolution in that that you can't just invest in, say, Bitcoin, for example, or Ethereum. However, they do make up the, the vast majority of the crypto asset ecosystem. And so from a diversification perspective, you should have kind of a, a sensible kind of market-based um, allocation. But it's not just like own the top 10 and then set it and forget it and, and turn away. If if you did that, you know, you would have had almost like 60% turnover as the top 10 became not the top 10, you know, is like all the scams and goofballs strategies and schemes come into the top 10 and then leave the top 10. And so you have to have a little bit more of a prudent approach to almost like avoiding certain assets. But at the end of the day, you can't avoid everything. And this is a highly speculative asset class. And so you you need to be diversified. And that's the beauty of, of the model you guys put together where you know, it really only was a 4% allocation into some of these more speculative assets. And, and that's like kind of what you want. You want some exposure there because when it does get good, it gets really, really good. The upside potential here is, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of leave it with this. When, when you invest in a traditional alternative investment, you're generally looking to either enhance the returns or reduce the risk. Most alternative investments are designed generally to reduce the risk. And so in order to allocate to these types of products, you have to allocate a large per- portion of your um, allocation in order to save yourself when markets go down. Here, you can allocate a small portion of your allocation because it's more of a return enhancer. And the upside um, asymmetry is so good, you know, because the, the potential upside versus the downside to your portfolio of two to three to five percent is is um is meaningfully like better in terms of allocating to crypto and then the volatility the ability to rebalance when markets are down even on an asset class that say goes nowhere it's just that ability of rebalancing when markets are down and then rebalancing when markets are up because you're selling so um, the fact that it's volatile actually adds to your portfolio versus a not so volatile asset class like say, fixed income or, or otherwise. <clears throat> ben, what's your, your sense on the, the allocations, people looking at today's uh, sell-off as, as a way to think about how to start allocating uh, coming, coming in? Certainly from, from where we sit at Wisdom Tree, you know, we've been working on these indexes and uh, trying to assist institutional investors in thinking about how this fits into a portfolio. What Eric has just said is broadly what, what we suggest. A small allocation, 1% to 2%. You get asymmetric upside. And uh, there's various ways in which you can configure that uh, exposure. Eric's just mentioned one, a rebalance periodically. Um, 
There's a few others. I mean, some people don't realize that this space is more than just Bitcoin. Now, if we wind the clock back about four years, it was kind of true. 90% of the market by market capitalization was Bitcoin. And what's happened in the last few years is, particularly with the arrival of Ethereum and all the applications that are built on top of Ethereum that have their own tokens and other projects that are trying to emulate and improve upon Ethereum, what you look at now with this market is like it's much, it's grown a lot relative to five years ago, and it's diversified a lot. So we've segmented the market by use case at Wisdom Tree. We've developed a taxonomy to understand what the different spaces are in the market. And so one way to think about it would be you try and go for the largest and most established uh, crypto or digital asset networks, and that would be Bitcoin and, and Ether. But you could now start looking at the segments and say like, hmm, there's a segment called DeFi, decentralized finance, applications that mimic services that the traditional financial system provides, like stock exchange, lending, uh, derivatives. Uh, but it does it in a completely software-mediated form. And so if you look at that segment of the market and you develop a thesis that says, huh, I think that software is about to do to financial services what the internet did to journalism and shopping, then you would go and, and get broad-based exposure across that DeFi segment, not putting all your eggs in one basket with the largest. You put small allocations across it all, and then in a few years you see if your thesis is correct. Does financial services get eaten by these DeFi applications? And you can periodically refresh your allocations as new projects enter the space and as projects fail and leave the space. Remember, this is a highly experimental area. We see lots of trial and error. Uh, lots of ideas do not work, a bit like the startup ecosystem, right? And so if you start thinking about it almost like a venture capital play and allocating strategically in certain areas, you can uh, develop like a cohesive strategy with asymmetric upside. Yeah, the behaviors are, are tough. I mean, people, I mean, I think personally, when you think about this, like dollar cost averaging into the market has probably been one of the more sort of well-founded ways to control your behaviors and emotions. You have a consistent strategy. Um, you don't worry too much about the, the fits and starts in that. You take advantage when things are, are, are on the way down and... Uh, and you're buying less as they're going up, but uh, it gives you a con the most the point is like having a plan, knowing what the plan is, sticking to the plan, uh, and so you're not wildly trading. Uh, I personally got caught up in some wild trading this week, um, and I wish I had more of just the, the broad allocation of the index. Um, we're trying to play arbitrageur on the UST DPEG and uh, made some money twice and and lost some at the end. Um, but but the system the system you know I think the having a plan is is a key a key part of that. Yeah, one one thing when I um, am asked by friends just like well how do I get started what do I what I I came up with this this concept of um, three threes so so no more than three percent um, no no less than three year time horizon and and invest about three percent of your discretionary income. For that entire period, you know, so so it could be just like what you spend on vacation budget or or whatever you know your your amount is. Just just pick that number and then just stick to it for three years. Just put <laughs> turn off the statements, don't look at the accounts, and then and then come back and then you'll you'll because um, I don't think you're going to harm yourself if you're doing it that way because it's just a rules based yes. equation. Like most of my mistakes in investing have all been human. Based. But when I have a rules and I have a system, then I can stick to it and, and things generally work out. That's, that rule of three is a, is a very good one. I, I personally started with like a 1% thing and then it sort of ballooned and uh, you're like, well, I, I should have stuck to, your, to Eric's 3% rule. That would have been a, a good rule of thumb. Um, Eric, it, it, tell us a little bit about... Um, just the the future plans for OnRamp. So you're talking about sort of, uh, you just raised this capital. Talk about what are you going to do with it? How are you thinking about shoring up the team? Where you want to go? What type of services you're building for the future of advice here? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and it, so it's really all about um, making it easy for, you know, ev everyone to get access to this asset class. The, the worst thing that could happen is for a client to ask their financial advisor, hey, what do you think I should do? And have the financial advisor say, sorry, I can't give you advice on that. And have the client leave and end up, you know, making some bad decisions because they, they didn't have that trusted financial advisor in the 
um, in the middle there. So that's kind of our goal is, again, just enabling the financial advisors, educating them, educating the clients, creating the access points so that they can do it in a compliant, regulatory-friendly manner and get um, get exposed to the asset class. Because if, if you're only going to allocate 2 3% or, or so to this asset class, it has to be easy. Like we have to to create that easy button for not only the financial advisors, but the clients and everyone to just, again, do it in a safe, regulatory-friendly manner. That's, the, you know, for the longest time, it was Project OnRamp, as we thought of the name. And and um, eventually, it's just like the perfect name. It's like you, you put the drivers in the slow lane on the highway, not in the fast lane, right? And so that's really what OnRamp is today, and it will continue to be. So now it's just about doubling down on because um, we, we have a whole slew of financial advisors that really want to come onto the platform. And so now it's about building up that customer success team and and the, the kind of sales organization so we can really service those advisors. But, but hands down, the most popular thing on the entire on-ramp platform from financial advisors has been the Wisdom Tree Reholds model um, portfolios. That's and again, it's just uh, I think they want that that little bit of the easy button of, of not knowing which ones to allocate to. And so this is their method of kind of offloading a lot of that professional advice to the Wisdom Tree Index team. Very good. We look forward to working with you all as you go to the future. Uh, any, Ben, closing thoughts where people can stay in touch? Any final views? Uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, very quickly. What's kind of amazed me this week is to watch UST, about $18 billion of US tokens, be liquidated and the, liqui- uh, the Luna cryptocurrency to go to zero. Massive shock to the market. And yet here we are. Like it still survives. Yeah. How many places in traditional finance can you have something go under like that in 48 hours and uh, things keep moving along bit by bit? There's a resiliency that I it always astounds me, and Eric alluded to it earlier. We've seen it proven again, like a, an impromptu uh, stress test. And uh, folks are still going. So it's just fascinating to watch play out. And there was no Fed that came to bail out the whole entire yeah. ecosystem. I thought there might be somebody that bailed out UST for some reason. It did not happen, uh, but very interesting. I uh, appreciate Eric Irvin, Honor Bevest, Ben Dean, Director of Digital Wisdom Tree Europe. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.